Hello everyone and welcome to the 10th episode of the Stack to Eat podcast. In this episode, we have with us Lordson, who is a consultant at Ajira Tech. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the common patterns, challenges that are faced while using Spark, especially for setting up a big data pipeline. And when you are ingesting data from multiple different sources and have to standardize them and then process the data for certain business use cases. So what are the different patterns that you can come across, what are the challenges that you might face. That will be the focus point of this discussion. Hey, thank you lots and uh, for taking the time and coming here to talk with us. Uh, would you like to start off by introducing yourself and what you do at Ajira? Sure, Manoj. Uh, thanks for having me on this call. So, um, I'm Lotson and uh, I'm a uh, consultant at Ajira Tech. So, um, at Ajira, we uh, focus on uh, helping out uh, our clients with their uh, complex engineering problems. So um, uh, on this call, we'll be focusing on uh, uh, one of our clients and the problems that we help them solve. So um, in our case, right, um, the client um, was uh, was uh, involved with uh, um, optimizing the insurance claims uh, from hospitals so that uh, they could uh, optimize the revenue that uh, they generate. So um, our uh, they had this uh, requirement that um, they acquired various vendors uh, who each of them uh, were part of optimizing a different part of the uh, uh, you know revenue pipeline for the hospitals so um, they were going to acquire uh, more uh, vendors as well so the requirement was that uh, each of the uh, hospitals were already uh, clients of these vendors that they would be sending us data and they wanted us to um, you know uh, make that data available to uh, the other vendors as well so they, they could cross sell products and so on so um, the requirement was that uh, we'd get we'd be getting data from multiple hospitals with uh, different formats and then um, we'd also need to make them available to different vendors and even new vendors who could uh, come on board later on so we needed to make the entire uh, system as configurable as possible so that was the uh, use case that we were trying to solve so I think you touched upon it a bit, like the data is going to be in different format and uh, not in standardized formats as well, right? So could you go into a bit of details on what was the format of the data, data that you're looking at? What, what were the challenges around handling the schema for it? How structured or unstructured was the data? And also talk a bit more around how much data we are talking about here. Like is it like uh, hundreds of GBs? What is the size of the data, number of records and even per, per day size? What, what are we talking about here? So um, the, uh, the data which was given by the hospital, so they came in like uh, different file formats. Uh, so the most common format that we received was like a, a flat file, right? So they gave us the data in like CSV files uh, and uh, they'd be giving it to, uh, to us in like, uh, so each hospital had a different uh, cadence at which they would be giving us data. Some of them uh, gave us like um, um, a monthly set of files. Some of them are giving it to us like weekly or uh, some of them are even giving it to us uh, daily. So um, uh, the flat file data was the most common part of it. Uh, there were other uh, formats as well. So uh, something um, like the health, uh, some of the formats are specific to healthcare, like um, uh, EDA files for um, uh, healthcare documents and so on. So um, the, uh, the other difference was that the structure of the files um, and the data they contained were also like uh, specific to each hospital. So uh, some of them um, would be normalized, some of them would be denormalized and so on. Uh, we'd have to perform joins with uh, two different file sets in order to get the data that we needed and uh, stuff like that. So um, 
they would also uh, contain something like um, um, what do we say? They sometimes needed uh, lookup maps as well. So we'd uh, go look up uh, there. Uh, so they'd give us just the codes. So we'd need to look up certain data for those codes and so on. So all of this uh, we needed to handle it as part of the ingestion. So uh, for the size of data, right? Um, we certain hospitals are uh, very uh, small in the sense they gave us like around um, uh, like two to five GBs of data per week. Uh, some of them had like uh, nearly 50 GBs of data a day itself. So um, overall we were processing like around um, nearly 500 GB of data per week for the initial uh, five uh, set of hospitals that we are testing out with. But uh, we were, uh, if we, I mean, when we went to production, we'd be like uh, serving around like 1,700 hospitals or so. So uh, the the background is also that each of those vendors already had a process in place for processing, uh, I mean, for going through those uh, uh, data. What we were sort of looking off was uh, to build a common uh, data platform so we get the data from all the hospitals and make it available to all those vendors as well. So each of those vendors were also going to be like facing uh, more more hospital data than they had uh, previously been exposed to. Yeah. Okay, while uh, listening to this, one of the, um, I think I, I uh, solved a similar problem around data ingestion, but how do you go about solving this problem of like essentially onboarding data from multiple different sources, right? Which is in this case, hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Because if engineers have to be uh, involved in each and every setup uh, of ingesting data into the pipeline, that's going to become a huge bottleneck. So how did you go about solving this integration of wide different range of hospitals who might have their own data, understanding that data, and then putting the data into some standard form and then putting, putting that into your system, right? And you also had to say, uh, do stuff like curves and joins across multiple files and all that. So yes. did you build like sort of like an internal platform that will enable users within yes. the organization, both engineers and non-engineers, to take care of uh, what was the approach like? Yeah. So uh, from the initial requirement that the client gave us, it was uh, sort of clear that the clients were uh, like, uh, they were also like uh, coming up with requirements as we went on. So uh, it was necessary for us to make it as configurable as possible. So uh, the requirements weren't fixed. So we uh, started off with, uh, you know, experimenting with the set of uh, declarative uh, approach. Um, what we wanted to do was like uh, specify this is the input file that comes in uh, or these are the files that come in and uh, this is how uh, like it maps to uh, the each of the fields that we require. So uh, we started out with that approach. Uh, we uh, But um, at that point, we did not uh, know the fact that we'd have to do joins or the data would be denormalized in some cases, normalized in some cases. As soon as we encountered that, we uh, had to like uh, switch over to a new method. Um, uh, wherein uh, we uh, um, also allowed the uh, joining complexity to be specified as part of the configuration itself. So we started out with uh, specifying everything as uh, JSON files, like uh, the configuration was entirely in JSON, but that uh, with with the addition of this part, right? So as long as it was a straightforward mapping, like, let's say the input column name is this, uh, you map it to this particular uh, uh, column name in our schema, um, it was fine when we were using JSON. Uh, once we started uh, having those joins and all of that, uh, as part of the ingestion configuration itself, we started, uh, the, the JSON files started becoming huge. So we also wanted to like uh, minimize the amount of, um, um, you know, management that the onboarding team needed to do. So what we did was like uh, one of, uh, we wanted to create a DSL. 
uh, domain specific language for uh, uh, just for the onboarding purpose. So uh, one of the easiest, uh, I mean, one of the most uh, powerful languages, which uh, sort of like, um, you know, has a uh, ability to generate a meta language in itself is like uh, um, the Lisp scheme of languages, uh, the family of languages following Lisp. So we sort of uh, created a, a Lisp um, language itself just to, uh, you know, specify the configuration. So it reduced the size of the configuration files by uh, a, a big, huge factor. So let's say like uh, we had a JSON file, which was like around 800 lines of configuration. Uh, we could now write it in like uh, around uh, um, less than 80 lines of uh, Lisp. So uh, what we did was like uh, have a parser for the Lisp. So each, uh, you know, operator that we specified in the Lisp would uh, map to one of the um, uh, Scala, I mean, Scala operations that we had uh, specified in our platform. So um, it, it would be like, uh, for example, let's say like uh, parsing a date column, right? So that's like a bunch of uh, transformations that we applied to parse a date column. So it's like uh, we first, we, uh, uh, you know, sort of go through the list of uh, date formats that could possibly, uh, that it could possibly be converted to, and then we sort of uh, fix it. So the that's like two or three uh, functions uh, that we wrote on top of the Scala API. So, um, we sort of wrapped all of them together into a single uh, list function so that uh, it's, uh, you know, it's easy for the onboarding team to use it. They just specify what type of data that they wanted to do and um, how, how it mapped to, to the uh, output schema and it would get transformed. So uh, a few questions that I had around this. So when you say mm -hmm. onboarding team, right, are those uh, engineers, non-engineers or a mix of both or uh, ah. what, what did it look like? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, they were uh, sort of a mix of both, but uh, they were more familiar with SQL than uh, general programming languages. So uh, one advantage that we had here was that uh, Scala provides, I mean, uh, Spark provides a, Scala, a SQL API for, uh, for it. So uh, most of what we did was like write wrappers around those uh, SQL uh, functions to make it uh, easier for them to use it. And uh, so even uh, non-engineers non were sort of expected to work yes. directly with the uh, Lisp uh yes DSL. okay yes okay and uh, was there any uh, thought or experiments around building a ui on top of this uh, or yes. was it left out so that you don't have to do it uh, it was too much yeah so we had a initial uh, concept of building a ui around it that's why we started mm -hmm. out with the json uh, framework first so uh, as long as it was a simple mapping, it was working fine. So, uh, but when it started to do joins and all that, uh, getting it out into the, uh, you know, UI became like, uh, um, for every change that we needed to do, the UI also needed to be uh, changed and so on. So what we did was like, uh, we had a simple mapping for the UI, uh, but when, uh, but we could also drop down to the DSL layer uh, so that um, uh, we offered a DSL editor for them. So they could write the list uh, as it is in order to su uh, support uh, some of the complex scenarios that came up, uh, uh, like joints and so on. Yeah, sounds interesting. So in this setup, uh, was there were there any, um, say, we can call them as bells and whistles uh, to aid in like testing or preview of data or stuff like that? Any any yes. other additional features did you have? Yes. And another related so, point is, uh, you also mentioned about your internal schema, right? So yes. uh, how did you expose this schema to people who are writing the DSL? Is it like, it can be something as simple as a documentation, right? This is the expectation yeah. schema. Yeah. Or if yeah. I'm having some other thoughts that I could have is if you're having a editor, TSL editor, mm -hmm. the autocomplete for it could complete some parts of the schema, just throwing yes. out things, right? So were there any yeah. other additional features like this and how to improve basically the experience of 
authoring the DSLs and managing the ingestion yes. part of it, right? So uh, to answer your first question, um, to support the Lisp editing experience, right? So we, uh, what we did was like uh, for these, uh, when when the when the onboarding team was writing the Lisp, we had something called a test run kind of uh, thing. So what it would do is like uh, pick up the files according to whatever they write in the Lisp, right? So uh, everything was configurable from the source till uh, the place that you had to write it out to. So uh, depending upon, uh, so we sort of like split it into like uh, each customer had a different uh, folder kind of thing. So uh, depending upon the source where they specified the list uh, to take the data from, um, we sort of took the first thousand rows or like uh, the limit was configurable again. So we sort of like took the thousand, first thousand rows, like uh, did the transformations on it and then uh, showed it to the uh, onboarding user to, and, and he could like go and check if the transformations were applied uh, as he intended. So that is one thing. The schema, right? Uh, again, like uh, since we were um, working on like changeable requirements, the schema was also sort of like uh, um, it, it wasn't changing very much, but uh, at least we had requirements to change the schema once like uh, every two months or so. So uh, what we did was like uh, create, uh, I mean, it was a document chat uh, with everyone, uh, which specified the latest schema, like uh, pretty much all the columns and the types that we are expecting. Um, and in also, uh, also in order to help with the Lisp, experience, uh, Lisp editing experience, we had uh, template lists. So every time they wanted to write a uh, you know new list, they just basically copied the template, which would be like uh, filled out with the standard way of uh, doing uh, things, and uh, all the columns would be like filled out with blank. So they just needed to put in all the columns that were necessary. And if there was any change in the way that uh, data was structured, like uh, you need to denormalize it or something like that, uh, they could add those additional uh, information in that. Right. Yeah. So uh, since you were mentioning like hospital data and around insurance and stuff, right? So what were the implications around handling data that is possibly private or medical data? And uh, was that a concern? What had to be done around it? Yes. Uh, so we had a concern around that. So um, the business requirement was that uh, the, I mean, the personally identifiable information should uh, sort of be encrypted and uh, stored. So uh, we, uh, our team per se wasn't uh, fully involved in the implementation that was taken up by another team, but uh, the overall architecture was that uh, um, the, the personal information alone will be stored in a separate uh, location, which is like uh, fully encrypted and sort of. Uh, only people with restricted access can even access that uh, storage block. Um, the rest of the data, the, the reason we needed to split the data out was like uh, the uh, business requirement was that analysts should be able to access as much of the um, you know data that was required by the business as uh, as much as possible without having to go through a secu security clearance. So uh, the personal identifiable information was not much of uh, use in our uh, business scenario. So it was okay if we could store it separately and only people who needed to look at that data could look at it. So we stored the personal identifiable information separately and the other information that was required for our uh, business use cases separately. And uh, the access restriction for the uh, PAA data was like uh, higher than what we had for the other data. So um, just purely from the data ingestion perspective, were there any top uh, challenges that you had beyond uh, obviously the private aspect of it and then standardizing any any other challenges that you had to face uh, purely from the data ingestion part of it before we move to the next section mm -hmm. 
so um the data data ingestion part of it so there were a uh, couple of uh, things that uh, we solved early on so one was like uh, we needed to keep track of uh, the data and how it flowed through our pipeline so basically um at least for the test uh, development and testing part right so for the production part uh, only the uh, input data would be archived and uh, whatever we got at the final output we'd be storing it for development and testing what we did was like every um, every logical point of transformation right so once we stage the data and then we like um, uh, perform a bunch of transformations on it and then the next uh, bunch of transformations happen so at every step of uh, tra transformations we stored the data so that we can like go back through um, each of them and uh, you know figure out let, let's say like uh, there there was a problem with configuring the list files or let's say there was a problem uh, in one of the development uh, uh, phases that we were uh, that we had done, uh, that we had done right. So we could just go through the data and figure out like at which uh, part did that uh, problem originate. So uh, that was one thing. Uh, the other part was like uh, we made the uh, uh, the data pipelines to be restartable at any logical point. So let's say uh, we pass through staging, and then uh, we pass through the initial. Uh, so so there were like bunch of uh, transformations that we did. So I, I'll go over that later. But if uh, at any any stage of the transformation we had an issue, we could like uh, look into it. Uh, some of the times it was like a data issue which could be like fixed then and there, and then we could restart the pipelines from that. Yeah, uh, that point uh, raises a related question around. Uh, so, how did you manage things around monitoring or alerting or whatever? Right? Some uh, say like part of the onboarding team has added a new uh, source, uh, say yeah. hospital source, and it suddenly started failing. So, what what did the monitoring or alerting system look like for this? Okay. Okay. So uh, this uh, ties into our implementation. So uh, we. Uh, since we started off, uh, we we needed to get the um, you know working concept ready as soon as possible. So uh, what we did was like we tried to leverage. Uh, we were working on the Azure stack, so we leveraged two of the um, um, offerings available there. One was like Azure Data Factory. Uh, we used this to like uh, um, to trigger the workflows and re-trigger re uh, pipelines and so on. The other one was application insights. So we added a logger to application insights uh, from within our Spark code. So basically, all um, you know um, exceptions or stack traces would be logged to the application insights. Uh, um, I mean th that service as well. Um, when it came to uh, Azure Data Factory, right? So if we triggered a pipeline and it failed in the middle, so it would uh, raise a notification saying that the pipeline has failed. And we'd be able to look, go through the logs either through um, the Databricks, uh, Databricks service that we're using or through application insights as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think uh, it's time to then delve deeper into how your uh, setup looks like. So we have the DSL written by the onboarding team. So what happens next? How is it uh, like converted into like a proper pipeline or a set of jobs, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. how, how, is, how is it processed? Yeah. So, um, so as uh, as I mentioned before, what we did was like uh, we um, sort of uh, had a um, the files would come into uh, the Azure Blob Storage. We were working on the Azure Stack, so we the uh, the we put the files into Azure Blob Storage, and then hey, uh, uh, just to uh, sorry to cut you there. Like, yeah. Any specific reason on why uh, Azure, or is it like just ah uh, yeah? So we uh, it was uh, so. The reason was like we needed to be HIPAA compliant, and Azure was uh, pr pretty, you know, uh, comprehensive about its uh, HIPAA offerings as well. 
and uh, yeah a bunch of our uh, vendors were also using azure so uh, it was like the most logical choice at that point for us yeah so okay. that makes sense yeah so uh, what we did was like uh, once the files came on the Azure blob, uh, we had a like uh, file trigger which would uh, start the pipelines uh, uh, that that triggered the staging process and so on. So um, we also had enabled it to be uh, manually driven. So uh, in, instead of the uh, file arrival being a trigger, we could just trigger it uh, when when and uh, you know as we wanted. So um, we sort of uh, turned off the file trigger uh, for the development and testing purposes because we are uh, using it uh, a lot. So we used it only for the uh, production so that we didn't have too many triggers at once because we are changing the data and testing it out. So um, when it came to the pipeline side, so Data Factory would uh, trigger a notebook in Azure Databricks. So what how we had set it up was like um, our code uh, core processing code would be uh, you know uh, written in Scala, compiled into a jar, and uh, put into the Databricks Spark cluster. Um, but the entry points into the code would be like uh, written in notebooks. There were uh, there was like two reasons for this. Uh, one, uh, we were uh, trying to do uh, you know blue green deployments as well. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, uh, Spark allowed that for Python, but it didn't allow it for uh, Scala. Uh, I mean, um, it it doesn't allow it for Scala as transparently as it uh, allows it for Python. So uh, that was one reason. The other reason was like uh, the ease of like testing out the data right uh, so um, let's say we had some data that we expected it to be transformed uh, yeah, in some way and uh, it it was working for us in our local but in the spark cluster it like uh, it was uh, you know some bit of data was like uh, not working out and we didn't know what it was so what we could do is like uh, both i mean if we ran it as a notebook we could then like uh, clone the notebook uh, and like go through the exact uh, same code that uh, the job would actually have gone through and we could like uh, sort of figure figure out the issues so uh, the usage of notebooks in our uh, you know development workflow like it, it tremendously helped us uh, speed up our uh, development process um, main reason being that uh, in our local right so we have like uh, data limits that we can uh, run on so uh, let's say we are running like 16 gb ram uh, running with 16 gb ram and like um, let's say like 500 gb of uh, ssd right that's a limit to how much of the actual data that you can put put through your machine on local so uh, uh, with the notebooks we could actually test with the entire data set because like uh, there were cases in which like uh, there was one record in out of like uh, 100 million records that was actually breaking the scenario so um, so this helped us to like tremendously improve our workflow because we could uh, immediately see the output as as and when we doubt so uh, we used uh, the databricks notebook to actually call into our uh, jar code so that was the second step of our uh, pipeline. So uh, once uh, this uh, goes through, right, uh, it would have completed a step. So uh, at the uh, initial stages, what we had was like three stages, like uh, uh, staging and um, the domain transform and basically the extracts that we are generating. Um, what happened was like, uh, as we started uh, going through more uh, onboarding through more vendors and more hospitals, uh, we sort of split the uh, data transformation part into multiple stages so that we could uh, keep it neat and clean. So uh, these stages would uh, uh, then uh, correspond to like a simple domain transform. What we did was like um, so write all the uh, nested data out into a flat structure uh, in a normalized way. So this sort of uh, helped us out a lot. Uh, 
uh, even though some, most of the data that we got were like uh, had the relational hierarchies and nesting uh, depending and each hospital was like sending us uh, different levels of nesting so that was another issue so uh, we sort of had to like uh, figure out uh, uh, the lowest common denominator that we could work on so which was like uh, keeping a flat uh, data so that is the first stage of the transformation and then like we go through nested uh, transformations and so on which were uh, internal to our business logic so we had like uh, different uh, stages in the pipeline like uh, uh, we we had a different stage for scrubbing we had a different stage for deduplication and so on and uh, we are talking about one single notebook here right now it's not like one notebook does one stage and then or, or one logical oh, set yeah. of stages and then drops over to the next notebook which is then iterated is that yeah what we are talking about or one single notebook with multiple uh, paragraphs yeah. uh, which are uh, equal to stages how is the how is the uh, code in notebook itself organized yeah so um, in the uh, initial way that we had designed it right there were like three notebooks one for staging one for transformation and one for extraction and we called each of them in uh, sequence and we would get the output so uh, but then as our requirements from the client do like uh, they needed uh, specific um, um, specific stages to be run for uh, specific uh, hospitals we had because they had subscribed to like more products than the others or something like that so we needed these steps also to be configurable uh, like which step needs to get run for which hospital so that uh, let's say like uh, for one hospital there's like five steps that needed to be run and for another one that's like seven steps that needed to be run and so on so uh, we ended up uh, simulating a, a pipeline structure uh, also uh, through configuration and uh, we had a single pipeline runner notebook what what it would do was like uh, uh, look through go through the configuration that it was uh, supplied with and call the appropriate uh, code in the jar. So we sort of moved from like having multiple notebooks to call different uh, parts of the pipeline to having a single notebook and passing it a configuration, which would actually uh, tell it to trigger uh, a specific part of the pipeline. Once that step was done, we automatically sent uh, another request, which would trigger the same pipeline with the next step in the configuration and so on. Yeah. Right, it's uh, good to know that uh, you're using notebooks to orchestrate essentially your pipeline right so that's something that we have tried doing but not in like any serious production use or like just for certain parts of it maybe for uh, training with an ml or something like that right so it's very interesting to know that you're doing uh, this approach uh, so um, you explained that it, it makes sense for us to debug it so what would you say are the some of the cons with this approach if any also Okay, Definitely, I think uh, it is very useful. That's that's the main reason to use notebooks. Right, you can step in at some point in mm -hmm. time where it mm -hmm. breaks, and then immediately you are in essentially uh, ID yeah. sort of environment where you can immediately yes. start debugging and looking at the issues and so on. Uh, it definitely makes sense from that perspective. But were there any issues with going with this approach, if any? So uh, we did not face issues as such, but we definitely knew there were uh, like uh, certain cons. Uh, one of them being that uh, notebooks, right? So uh, unless you version them properly, pretty much uh, anyone with access to the Databricks cluster can like go to your notebook, change the code and so on. So in case it was not versioned properly, the current code that's executing could be like different from the uh, code that uh, you had written out. So that was one thing. Uh, the other issue was like, uh, again, uh, the code needs to be like compiled on the fly before running it. That was, uh, in the phase of like uh, the execution time that it takes for the uh, amount, I mean, the huge amount of data that it needs to process, it's not a 
um big issue per se but uh, again this is one thing that we need to consider so how we were using it was like uh, uh, we were using it to like test out our code or uh, like uh, do rapid prototyping and development in the notebooks and then once we got to a stable uh, you know working code which uh, didn't like which didn't need to be changed or so on we moved it into the core uh, platform code itself which was uh, like uh, kept in a repo and compiled as a java Um, so uh, since you mentioned that right, um, I think uh, how did you go about doing actually the versioning of it? So like so, whenever we are doing changes, how do we even know that okay, this is what has changed from previous run to this run? Like when we yeah. uh, have a jar, we have we have the jar flowing through say our entire mm-hmm. CI process, right? You mm-hmm. know which commit it came from, what are the changes? Yes. We can cut our CI pipeline to see what has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the were there any features that even uh, the database notebook side offered? what were the uh, what were the solutions that you had in place yeah so databricks notebooks offer a git integration solution so it's like you point to a repo and uh, point to the path of the file like uh, you you specify which branch you want to uh, log into and uh, which uh, path of the repo contains the particular notebook and it would uh, automatically have it version controlled as well um but we did not go with this uh, option entirely uh, one reason being that uh, the business also wanted to use the notebooks to test out some of their ad hoc uh, sql code um, so what uh, we did was like instead maintain a discipline that uh, each of the notebooks right uh, we would sort of have it each under our own uh, working folder so each uh, person would have their own working folder and uh, their code would be there if we wanted to check out the code of someone else what we do is like clone the clone their notebook and uh, run it uh, on with, within our folder Uh, the code that was going to be run by the jobs right so those were like put into a shared folder and these were like uh, sort of like uh, linked to the repo itself good and uh, i think you uh, in our initial discussions you did mention about uh, optimizations and code tweaks around spark so what were the things that you had to do from the spark side of things yeah okay uh, so this might be more oriented towards uh, people who i mean uh, if you have been working in spark for uh, uh, you know uh, like couple of years or so this might be like uh, pretty second hand i mean second nature to you um for uh, people who are like uh, um you know sort of new to spark it might be like uh, you know uh, things that uh, you should you had been told so that uh, didn't have to make some rookie mistakes or something like that so um one one of the aspects like uh, which was uh, really good was like we we sort of combined uh, um, the processing or, or like uh, the expressiveness afforded by uh, you know relational algebra like you know you know that's what sql is based on so uh, if you are used to doing uh, big data in terms of like let's say map reduce or uh, you know purely procedural programming or functional programming and so on so it might be t- uh, tempting to like go through the data uh, like you know process data as um, like you would normally do in a program rather than trying to uh, uh, harness the big data aspect of it so one amazing thing that uh, spark does is like it it's it's uh, it's like they implement a, a sql at their entire uh, uh, implementation is like uh, based you, you convert everything to sql in the middle and uh, spark has a sql optimizer which like converts that to java so uh, one amazing thing is like uh, you can combine the uh, expressiveness of uh, relational algebra along with uh, functional programming constructs to actually express ideas that uh, are 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 write programs which are like usually complex and would take much uh, higher number of lines in order in like a very small uh, 
uh, amount of code. So one example was like uh, we had an ID consolidation code uh, uh, that uh, we needed to like essentially uh, we had different uh, columns which would uh, you know map to ID. I mean uh, have like ID. So let's say like uh, there's an ID which says like uh, for one record the ID is A, the second record is the ID, uh, the ID is B. And then uh, the hospital gives us some information telling that ID A is actually ID B as well. So we needed to like uh, consolidate those IDs together to then say that uh, all of these are like actually the same type. So um, so what they had uh, previously done was like uh, use recursive SQL queries to actually handle that and they were running it like around um, um, for a single load itself. Uh, it was taking around like 40 minutes or like nearly an hour or so just to figure out uh, what records like belong to the same ID. So uh, with uh, with Spark, right? What we did was like uh, harness both the. Um, uh, so, so if we were to write this uh, query in uh, direct uh, SQL, let's say, so it would lead to like huge amount of SQL, which is unmaintainable. So, when it comes to Spark, you can um, write the same SQL query, but uh, you can make it like uh, uh, the API allows you to like compose those SQL queries together. So that uh, your code is actually so small. So uh, the outcome of that is like we were able to write the same logic in like around 150 lines of code, and it was way faster. Um, it it ran for like uh, let's say um, um, the same data set which was taking like uh, 40 minutes to an hour using uh, normal SQL queries. It was running in around like uh, five minutes on our uh, um, uh, in the Spark code for the entire cluster. I mean for the entire data. So uh, there were a bunch of uh, things that we needed to optimize here though. So uh, one thing was that um, um, Spark has this concept of uh, partitions. So um, it's like, and the important part that nobody says is like, unless you explicitly tell it to repartition, it only calculates the partitions on uh, when it's like reading from the disk, when it's like, uh, you know, performing a join and so on. So what happens when you try to, uh, you know, expand data or like collect data like this within within uh, you know uh, the SQL query itself. It's like it tries to fit all the data within a partition, and if you are not careful about repartitioning it later, what happens is like uh, you end up with a partition which has huge amount of data, and the other partitions have like a relatively less amount of data. So you run into partition skew. So one uh, one huge partition can end up slowing down your entire spot check. So if you like repartition the data, you will see that uh, you, it runs up uh, pretty faster. So that is exactly what happened in this case. Like uh, there were certain uh, records for which the, uh, you know, there were multiple IDs to consolidate, certain records did not have any IDs to consolidate and so on. So uh, when we first tried it out, the logic was like, uh, it went fast for like 90% uh, of the data and then like 10% of the data was getting forever processed. So once we figured out this issue and uh, we added uh, repartitions and uh, there was another concept called uh, um, range join hints, which uh, essentially uh, reduced the amount of uh, data that Spark has to go through in order to figure out uh, what to join against. So uh, the, this logic uh, actually consisted of uh, recursive joins. So uh, this also helped us uh, speed up the code a bit. Also, another uh, important thing that we sort of learned out was like uh, um, when trying to implement it, uh, let's uh, try to avoid Spark user-defined functions because although they allow you to uh, write any kind of you know um, regular code as you would write normally, 
they end up being um, performance hits because spark is unable to optimize them uh, when it when it's like with the raw sql api with uh, that uh, spark provides uh, the catalyst optimizer that uh, spark uh, provides will do a tremendous uh, job of optimizing all those queries but i think those are uh, nice points around uh, optimization for at least uh, for those who are starting out i think uh, uh, one of the main takeaways from this episode can be how to for someone who is starting off with data pipeline starting off with spark what are the main patterns and challenges that they could be facing and give some hints towards where they have to move towards right and i think a, lo- a lot of times with spark 80% of it it takes care of but the rest 20% you have to take care of it yeah. there's no way around yeah. it you have to do the optimizations you have to understand your data yes. to know what is going to happen and we get there is no single answer that anyone can give that will yeah. solve the problem right you have to understand your data and and and, and i think yeah. that is the most tricky part of it with spark right it come, does come with a lot of nice defaults and yes. works yeah. beautifully so, for most of the time but some of the cases Uh, you have to go in, understand the data, understand some of exactly. the parameters, exactly. and so on and so on. Yeah. Cool. I think uh, that pretty much covers uh, what I wanted to cover from uh, this one. Uh, do you have any other closing comments? Um. So, uh, closing comments. Um, I would say, uh, try to prefer uh, simplicity over complexity. <laughs> mm. Yeah. it helps in the long run not just for mediamic code but also like for composable code so yeah yeah i i keep uh, referring to the zen of python here simple is uh, <laughs> better than complex but uh, complex is also better than complicated so <laughs> yeah i think yeah. Uh, spark allows us to do a lot of that uh, we can solve a lot of things in a very simple manner but some cases it has to become complex for us to solve them. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Larson, uh, for taking your time explaining some of these concepts. Some of them, especially around the DSL and uh, the notebooks that you used, are uh, very interesting to know about. Maybe in the future, if you can uh, write a blog post around that, also people can look at it. What what is the solution looking like? The podcast can only show it in certain way. We have to uh, imagine it a bit more. But maybe if you can write also blog post on it, that would be helpful for a lot of folks as well. Sure, Manoj. Thanks for time to you know. talk on your podcast so sure thanks a lot see you bye